I have sat with high-speed types sitting around a table gaming something out, and they're not as competent in their plans as actors will be around a table read. I was like, do I have the tolerance, quite frankly, to deal with that right now? I'm not sure I do, but I can, and I'd like to, but I think I need some backup. I need to get into this space with folks I really want to play with. That meant the veteran community. They're the writers. And if there happen to be veteran actors, God bless. Veteran directors, cool. But really, we're going to focus on developing, finding, assessing, producing veteran writers and bringing more veterans into the theater space doing for theater what folks like Dead Reckoning have done for poetry, where the veterans just start to take over the space more. Maybe we can do some immersive art shows, start to mix media and bring some other folks in and really start to build out the ecosystem of veterans in the arts, specifically in the live performance space. Is that much of a, is that, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post-9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian, and that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 56 features my good friend, Christopher Paul Meyer, a U.S. Army veteran, a writer, an actor, a comedian, and a nonprofit founder and leader. He founded Vet Rep Theater and its cousin, Savage Wonder. He also hosts Profiles and Havoc for the Havoc Journal. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. All right, so Christopher Paul Meyer, welcome to Veteran Made. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me, Carrie. Glad to be here, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate it, and I'm glad to have turned the tables on you, um, and and I'm glad to be interviewing you. Uh, and one thing that I just have been struck by listening to to your podcast and interacting with you, and then and then listening to back to the podcast that that we did together, I'm just like, man, this this man is great at asking questions and great at giving space to to his guests and 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 i'm sure because you're you're a, a an artist and a creative director and all those things like i am sure that you know what you want to get at least you have an idea of what you want to get out of your guests but it just doesn't feel like that when you're in the moment but then you're listening back and it is just so damn good so i'm really excited to uh to, to, to talk to you and learn from you well, please i i appreciate that uh, i mean i think we're all learning from each other um yeah, I have. I, I'm not that good. I, I truly, I guess if there's, there's one thing I believe in, it's um, I'm very interested and curious in other veterans in the arts. And I genuinely am interested in their stories. And I'm generally interested, and especially like in the one we did for Havoc, I'm interested in talking to veterans and everybody's story is interesting. So curiosity goes a long way. I really don't have a goal in mind. I really am just curious to see where they take it. And it's fascinating how many unintended consequences end up being happy accidents and you end up with really cool stuff. Yeah. Where did that curiosity come from for you personally? Regret. I think, you know, I think you spend, a, not you, some people, myself, maybe spend, uh, can spend a decent amount of time wondering about roads not traveled. So it's interesting to kind of, hear what other paths people took and how they got to places. Um, I guess there's a part of me as a New Yorker that I'm, I'm used to being shoulder to shoulder on the subway with many different kinds of folks. So I'm always curious about other people and other cultures and other experiences and things like that. So I guess, you know, there's that too. I think there's an innate curiosity, but yeah, it's, it's a fascination with people. 
Um, and I think there's probably, yeah, a mix of the personal and the experiential that uh, makes you want to ask questions and kind of, and I think when I struggle the most in interviews is when I am so caught up in my own stuff that it's really hard. You probably know this because you're doing 12 things at once also, you know, it, that, that sense of, man, I'm really in my own bandwidth right now and I'm in my own headspace and it's really hard to separate divorce from that and go, Hey, what's going on with you? Tell me your life story and let me get into your stuff. And, um, but I think it's healthy and I think it's, and I live for the gobsmack moments when somebody says something that you really resonate with and you're like, shit. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I can see how that would happen. And I think, um, yeah. So that curiosity, I think, uh, it's probably fueled from some degree of regret and some degree of innate curiosity. Yeah. About humans. Yeah. I, I hear that. It does. Totally. I mean, I, I think on the New York city front, like I think New York city does that to people. Right. And I actually think the majority of majority of our audience, my audience, and, and, and I think a good, a good deal of yours, um, you know, because it's a, a military and a, and a veteran audience is probably not a ton of experience with New York city. Right. And, and like really urban, dense urban areas like New York city, which uh, of which there's, you know, only a few in the world like that, London, Tokyo, right. New York city, maybe a couple others, you know, Paris, not even, right. It's like, it's, it, that's even way more open, even though it's still dense. And I think when I first moved to New York city from Los Angeles, I'd only actually funny, fun, New York city story. My first time ever in New York city was the weekend before I shipped off to basic. Huh. My parents yeah. or my dad and my stepmom were like, Hey, let's go to New York city and go see a Broadway show and like go do all of that. And so we stayed in times square, you know, right there in Bryant park, which I didn't know was Bryant park at the time. We went to see the lion King. It was incredible. We did all the things. And then yeah. I lived in New York. I lived in Brooklyn for, you know, about five ish years and had some friends who lived in hell's kitchen and kind of worked in Bryant park for a little bit while I was freelancing, you know, at restaurants and stuff. I'm like, yeah. this is not New York city, but it also is, you know, you get off, you get off at 42nd and you're like, wait, I live here. This is the same place yeah. as where my apartment is in Brooklyn. You know, it's like, that. that's kind of right. weird. And so New York city has that thing where it will, you know, it will put you in a place that feels uh, both like very dense and very in the moment, but then it puts you next to people that are getting off at an entirely different stop, an entirely different neighborhood, entirely different life experience, entirely different, like the branches are infinite in New York city. And so it's an interesting it's an interesting place to to kind of live and, and notice those small things that you're talking about. Yeah, there's nothing like it. I, I agree. And I think it's, um, I remember my dad said that to me um, growing up. He said, you will, um, nothing will ever surprise you again. He said, because you're a New Yorker. And I know what he meant. Um, I mean, that's not 100% true, obviously. There's a lot of things that New Yorkers are not exposed to, but but I get what he meant. Um, and And now... I mean, even just little things. I remember a girlfriend of mine in college was like stunned that I walked my dog on the roof of our building. Like that's where I walked the dog. Like I wasn't going to walk outside. So it's like, and it, like in the winter and all, it's like, yeah, you just go up to the roof and walk the dog around the roof. She was like, she was from Tennessee. She's like, what? You know, was, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Weird yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. 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 No, I love it. Well, so back to the curiosity thing. I mean, do you feel like, mm-hmm. and, and both, maybe it sounds like from a, from a less positive, um, you know, kind of initial, initial thought and experience, but then thinking about doing a lot of things all at once, do you find being curious with a person while you're talking to them grounds you in the moment? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there has to be some innate attraction um, to 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 put you in the moment, and I think, um, yeah, curiosity certainly does that. It's also a selflessness, and I feel like you. I mean, again, um, this is something I think you and I both share. Is I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we both have a degree of appreciating and enjoying championing others, and that goes hand in hand with curiosity that you get turned on by what somebody's doing and you go, shit, man, more people should know about this. And I'm glad I want to bring that out. I want to illuminate that and elevate that. So I think that's a, um, I think that's very much a component and yes, that grounds you in the moment a hundred percent, but it's a selflessness, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't find myself worrying about myself very much in those, you know, I'm kind of willing to prostrate myself and just go, Hey, what's going to serve you and serve your story and and help you say whatever it is that's on your mind. I think that's right. I mean, I, I agree. I feel that way. And and I, I try to, I try to stay feeling that way. I try to stay operating that way. Maybe even sometimes when I don't feel that way, when I get excited about, about something that I was like, Ooh, this is a good opportunity for me. It's like, okay, remember what your mission, my wife and I talked about this at dinner last night. We, you know, went to the local pizza place and, um, and, you know, we talked about like staying grounded, like what's the mission, what, what was the initial concept? What can you build on this, but also don't build, you know, too much too quickly or go in a direction that isn't on mission, you know? And I, right. when I talked to, um, I was privileged enough to be a guest on, on, on ones ready with, with, um, Aaron and, and, and Trent and, and peaches and peaches said something really interesting when we were talking about being, uh, you know, air force special tactics versus being maintenance, right? He's like the, there's, there's air force doctrine, which is sometimes you are supported, and sometimes you are supporting, right? And so it's important to know that you're not all, you don't have to be falsely humble, right? There's no false humility. Like I'm always in the supporting role. Sometimes you are in the supported role and that's important to remember, but it is really important to understand when you're in the supporting role. And I think maybe with with some of the, um, we can get into the different, um, the 12 different things that, that you're working on. I feel like you do a great job having now having now participated as a, as a, a, as a listener to your podcast and, um, and then also participating as as a, a consumer of of a show in person and seeing what you're doing online, like you do a good job of jumping back and forth between supporting and also being supported. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that because I don't know how much I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I I hope I do. I hope I do a, a decent job. I've I hope that I am supporting more often than I'm supported. I guess the nature of a nonprofit is you're always going to have your hand out in some way, shape, or form, and therefore, by definition, need to be supported. Um, but I also hope to be a conduit more than um, doing it for my own glorification or anything else. And I, and I find myself, it's interesting because I've, I've never been a good salesman for myself. And when I was, I mean, Ages ago when I was acting or doing stand-up and all that, I was a terrible hustler on my own behalf. I found it incredibly, I, f- I found an incredibly non-self-conscious way of operating, working on behalf of others. And especially for po- folks you really believe in and care about and, and, and see the potential of. And I find myself very comfortable in that role. Um, so that's been enjoyable. And um, yeah, I'm kind of enjoying just being in that space right now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I meant. And that, that's yeah. evident. Like we, we can see that people can see that and people experience that. 
What was um, what was the genesis of your of your creativity and your interest in the arts and your your your, your varied interest across a bunch of different media uh, in terms of stand up, in terms of playwriting, in terms of performing on stage? Um, I'm not sure how much screen work that you've done. I'd be surprised if you haven't, and if you're not interested in that, like where did this where did this interest come from? You grew up grew up in the city. Like what what was where did it start, and then how did it integrate with military service? And and hmm. and then on a well, obviously we'll jump into your transition out. Yeah, it was. Um, so I'm from a showbiz family. Um, we were three generations in the business. Um, my grandfather kind of started it. He was uh, Mexican and he made his career in radio. Um, he would, did uh, like the old gangbusters radio show and Superman. He always played bad guys on the Superman radio show. And then he was the original Tonto on Tonto and the Lone Ranger on radio, which I never asked him. I don't know how many lines Tonto had on radio, so I don't know exactly what that entailed, but whatever, that's what he did. But then he was because there breathing on my he was there breathing. Like I don't I seriously don't know what he did uh, as Tonto, but that was like the thing. It was like, oh yeah, grandpa was the original Tonto on radio. Um and then being Mexican, he ended up the rest of his career as radio kind of faded out. Um most of his career was spent playing Japanese fighter pilots in World War II movies, because what else you could do with a Mexican? <laughs> in tv and film so he did that um but then my mom and my aunt really became um the the next wave and my mom ended up doing broadway she was a fosse dancer she did the first national tour and the second broadway cast of fiddler on the roof and um you know had a great career on broadway until i pretty much ruined that when i came along um, my aunt went on to do 30 years on a soap opera. Um, she, she followed my mom to Broadway, but then she ended up having her own career on TV for 30 years and ended up kind of, um, dominating the, the show that she was on. Uh, and then, um, and then my cousin, her son uh, is now a very successful actor. So for me, it was, it was the family business and it, there was kind of a, unstated well sometimes stated but often unstated expectation that i was going to go into the business and that just um seemed that was normal to me so i didn't run away to join the theater i didn't have this anti-authoritarian streak that a lot of artists do where they're like oh screw you i'm not going to be in insurance i'm going to go to to showbiz and for me it was very much uh that was what was expected so for me my whole life i kept putting it at arm's length and probably taking it for granted more than I should. Um, I, you know, played football in college, uh, which I had no right to do, but I was determined to push myself. And it was the nineties. I was like, this is probably the closest to war I'll ever get. So let's do this. And, you know, there was a sense of just wanting to test myself and kind of do robust male things. And I thought, well, you know, there'll be time for art. You can do art at any age. So why am I going to spend my you know, formative functional years doing that. And then when I graduated, I was like, okay, now it's time to get serious. But even then, yeah, I didn't want to just go down the traditional path that the rest of my family had. My cousin went to Juilliard. Um, so there was an expectation, am, am I going to go to a conservatory? And um, I gave a very half-assed attempt at doing that. But I was like, nope, I'm going to do stand-up. I'm going to do this the hardest way I can possibly see fit. I like the idea of being in nightclubs and doing five, six sets a night and running around town and doing that. So I did that um, for 
several years, really, until I ended up moving across the country to Los Angeles, which was um, based to your question about screen work. It was um, one of those uh, very Hollywoodish moments where I'd auditioned for something on tape um, that my agent had submitted me for in New York. And it was a sitcom. It was the lead in a, a sitcom pilot. And I was sitting working a temp job at an advertising agency uh, in uh, in the city. And she called and she said, hey, you need, be, need to be on the Fox lot in L.A. tomorrow morning at like 8 a.m. Uh, you're going to producers with this audition. And so I took the red eye out to L.A. She's like on the phone with me, giving me quotes and all that. And uh, I ended up absolutely fucking up that audition it was the most nervous i'd ever been in my life because i got there and i was the only one they'd flown out from new york and there were only two other guys and they were both la guys and i was like oh shit i'm the one they want and this is going to change my life and i'm going to make money and i'm going to blah 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 and um i shat the bed and then i stayed in la to try to make a go of it and that ended up i just ended up getting sick of the business and i was like yeah i don't you know at this point 9 11 had happened um, that was something that deeply affected me because I was at the t- Trade Center when it went down. Um, I, there was a, I had a deep sense that I was missing out on a war that I really should be a part of. And um, I just kind of subconsciously steered my life into getting out of the business and going, I, think, I, I don't think this is the time for me to be doing showbiz. Long answer to a short question, but there's that. That's how that all sure. unspooled. Reminds me of um, one of my favorite South Park bits where there's the, I can't remember what the kid's name is, but one of their friends, um, his dad is like a musical theater guy and he really wants to play basketball. And there's like, that like, ain't no son of mine playing shooty hoop. <laughs> you remember that one? And it's just like, I don't, but I could see that. Yeah. It's such yeah. a funny, like, it's such a funny thing to think about. Like for you, show business was the man it was the establishment you know and for for a lot of people growing up in in places that aren't the coasts um or or production hubs or or creative hubs what have you you know they're like yeah that's a really cool way to go be avant-garde and like get out there and and like you know really move culture and for you it's like ah man this is what my family does and they're telling me i should do it and they're probably telling you that you have talent for it and you do obviously like those things are true you're kind of dealing with a bunch of different truths kind of bombarding you, but you also have other interests and other pursuits that you might want to take. So it's an inverse, a foil to, to what a lot of other people who try to get into the business think about. What did you study? Where'd you go to college and what did you study while you were playing ball? Um, I went to college of William and Mary in Virginia and, um, I was a history major. I did not take school incredibly seriously. Um, I really wanted to join the Marine Corps out of high school and my mom was ready to chop my head off. And she's like, the hell you are. I, I want to join the Marine Corps. I should say, uh, Mogadishu, Battle of Mogadishu happened uh, as I was that October of my senior year. And that really motivated me. I was like, holy crap. The, uh, I remember I cut out the pictures of the Rangers that had died in Newsweek. They had like a little blurb mm-hmm. on just quickly their ages and where they were from. And I remember I had it above my desk um, at in, in high school and I'd, look at it all the time. And so I went to the Marine recruiter's office and I remember the Marine was like, that's the army. Yeah. The army just left their guys there. Marines would never do that. And I was like, I don't think that's really how that works, but whatever. Um, so I was like, all right, sure. I'm here to drink the Kool-Aid. So I became a Marine pulley for like six months. 
And then, um, you know, we pulled out a Mogadishu and I was like, well, that's a real dick tease. I was like, okay, if this is how that's going to be, you're like, I'm not going to sign up for four years only to get wars taken away from me. So, um, so then my mom had a pretty easy sell when she was like, the hell you're joining the Marine Corps. You're going to go to college and do what normal, respectable people do. And I was like, all right. So, but then at college, like, and now looking back, it's much easier for me to see how much I was sabotaging myself really did not take my school work very seriously. And, um, I had not played football in high school. Um, football wasn't something you played in New York city. And in high school, I was really focused on judo, full contact karate, things like that. And so I was like, but I started playing Madden and I was like, yeah, football. I was like, this is actually a really cool sport. I know I'm getting to it late, but what the hell? So I walked onto the team and we were a one double a team <clears throat> and I was probably the worst player that ever played for William and Mary, but it was great. I mean, I, I was a, you know, backup safety for three years and, uh, my, the starters were Darren Sharper, who went on to oh win gosh. like eight Pro Bowls, and the other, the strong safety was Sean McDermott, the head coach of the Buffalo Bills. Now, um, oh and my senior year, uh, you know, we graduated Mike Tomlin, the coach of the Steelers. Yeah. Um, you know, we had, we had like a lot of like a lot, and and when I graduated, my my senior year, I shifted and tried to become a fullback because I really wanted to see playing time, and um, they we graduated all three fullbacks my junior year, so. My senior year, I was like, hey, I think I might have a shot if I bulk up enough and all that. And that lasted about one week. And then a true freshman who was much bigger, stronger, and better than I was took the position. So I still didn't see any playing time. But I was able to say that I'd at least been on the field with somebody on just about every NFL team. Uh, and that was always cool. And so I remind my kid of that when he plays football now that, yeah, 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 I was on a field with Randy Moss once. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. Big fucking deal, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. so so, it, but it was it was very much a desire to push myself, test myself, and try to, um, yeah, keep everything, uh, you know, just assuming I'd showbiz in the bag, which was incredibly stupid, cocky, and naive of me. But go, yeah, that I can get back to that whenever. In the meantime, I'm gonna, you know, push, 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 and hustle this. Man, a lot of threads I could definitely pull on there, and we'll have to do it again sometime because there, are other, I think there's probably a lot of a lot of things in there, experiences, lessons, et cetera, that that I'm, I'm sure have applied. But I I, I definitely want to get to like what you're building, and what you've been building, um, and not to gloss over you know service stories. But you listen to the podcast, you know this isn't an operator stories uh, podcast. It's not an infantry stories podcast. But if you could just give a primer, like what did you do in the military? Did you commission or did you enlist? No, I, I, I never wanted to be an officer. I really wanted to do the job and I knew enough about the military to, to have a pretty good idea of what officers did. And I really was not into management. Um, I, 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 that did not turn me on at all. I, I really wanted to be a subject matter expert at whatever I did. I wanted to be the one that was called on because they really knew what they were doing. Um, <clears throat> I'll try to, I'll try to give the, the short, short version of this. Um, I enlisted as a firefighter. Um, in the army, I wanted, when I enlisted, they were giving out $40,000 signing bonuses for airborne infantry, cab scout, things like that. And I, at that time was living in my truck. So that made a ton of sense to me to do. Um, and at maps, that one phone that they have at maps, I used my, I went to that phone and I called my mom and I was like, look, I was like, I'm going to do airborne infantry. You know, I've been heading down this path for a long, long time. And, you know, this is right when the surge was happening in Iraq and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, but I need to know you're going to be okay because I'm your only kid. 
and she and my dad were much older and um she was willing to go along with it and i knew it would kill her and i was like yeah i was like okay i won't do a combat arms job i'll find something else and so i ended up doing firefighter and probably fortunately um because uh she ended up dying uh she and my dad ended up dying uh with within what would have been my enlistment contract so that probably was serendipitous in retrospect um so i did firefighter and then when they died um which i won't get into because that's a bit of a story in and of itself but uh then i was like okay the leash is off i'm a little bit longer in the tooth than i'd like to be but i was like now i can kind of do whatever i want physically i'm not able to do everything i would have liked to have done but I'm like, I can do some some more stuff. So then um, I ended up re-enlisting and going into a support role in the soft environment. And that was um, a blast. Uh, I mean, it was the kind of thing I wish I'd done 15 years earlier, but um, was able to deploy every year. Um, and yeah, just enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, so yeah, so I did that and then ended up getting to 14 years and coming up on my last contract when I got out. What made you decide to get out at, at 14? Did you medically retire or what made you decide to get out at 14 instead of doing the full 20 and retiring? Yeah, it was two things. Um, one, we had the opportunity to start vet rep and I was, I don't believe in letting a good idea atrophy. I was like, I think it, this thing seems like it's needs to birth right now. And I think if I sit on it, it's not going to happen or it's going to be very degraded. So let me not do that. The other thing was, um, I got back from Afghanistan in October of 2020. So, you know, the writing was wildly scrawled on the wall that the wars were winding down, or at least, you know, a lot of opportunities were going to wind down. And I felt like it was a major inflection point. Um, so I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to get a lot of the same opportunities that I've had. And I don't feel like, I don't feel like, <laughs> I'm missing out on the opportunity to help the fight. I don't think, you know, I, I think this is the right time. If there's going to be a time for me to step aside, I think this is it. It still took me about five months to figure out, to make sure that was really what I wanted to do. But, um, but yeah, that's why. And then I, I of course had a young family and I hadn't seen my, my kid was at an age where really I'd missed, I forget what it was like 75, 80% of his life at that point. So yeah, I needed to probably that that made a lot of sense to me on paper too that I probably needed to be home. Well, it sounds like you had joined the military for a reason to be in the military for a reason. You weren't a military man. You weren't. It wasn't a military family. You're like, yeah, I gotta you know stay in and, and just do whatever. It's like, no, I'm here to fight. Here to fight a war. Here and here to support a specific cause. And you know that's that's winding down. And and so I don't need to stay. I think that makes I think that makes a ton of sense. What um when did the idea for for vet rep? I'm actually taken back to the question I asked you in, in Alexandria and you brought up on, on our episode together, which is like, what's the brand? And this is now my opportunity to kind of ask you, like, what is yeah. the ecosystem of, of, of brands and nonprofits and, and different things that you're putting together? So I want to get into that. And that's what I want the, yeah. the bulk of the rest of the conversation to be. But when did it germinate? When did it start to and who was involved at the time you're in the military? Because and I think that this is relevant because there are a lot of, of members that are serving now right? That are, that have an idea for what they can do and whether they want to create content, you know, for social media or digitally, whatever it might be while they're in, or maybe they have something they want to start planning for while they get out. It's really, really important. I think for people to understand 
how others have actually done that. So when did the idea yeah. start and, and, and what was the process like as you were serving and coming up with an idea that you felt really had legs? I, I wish I had a better answer for this. I wish I had, a, I think the book answer is that I was really deving all this out my last year in the military and prepping the runway and when I, and hitting the ground running when I got out. That's not what happened. Uh, for me, there was, um, there was an opportunity to do a nonprofit, but it was broad. It was really whatever, whichever direction I wanted to take it. And what had, the one thing that had come to me, and this is where my time in the military and continuing to be in the military while this idea germinated helped, is over that year, most of which was in Afghanistan, um, I didn't have a lot of time to think about it, but there were some stray thoughts I had where I was like, the three things that are most important, I think, for a nonprofit to focus on, for my intents and purposes, was education, entertainment, or some sort of media venture, some sort of truth-telling, news-gathering, something like that, um, situational awareness kind of platform. And I was very torn about which of those needed to be the most important and which one I could significantly contribute to. Um, I did not have a, a clear picture as I out-processed, I did not have a clear picture. I really spent a very quiet four or five months after. I had a lot of leave saved up, which was nice. But also, um, it, it was very stressful in my brain. It was very quiet physically, but in my brain, I was very stressed trying to think of, I know I can make a difference. I got to think about what that is. And it took me a while. Now it seems obvious to me where what I should have been doing um, because I'm doing it. But it took me a while to downgrade my thoughts and to strip away the layers and the artifice that I built up in the military. And that's not like a false persona thing or anything like that, It's or false machismo or anything. It's more just interests and skill sets and kind of stripping it back and going, hey, when I take all this away, what's the residual effect? Where really can I be the best value add? And you know, I was like, I think I have stuff to contribute in all those things in education and news gathering and, you know, blah, 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 fact finding and investigative journalism and, you know, things like that that interest me. But I was like, but the one thing I think that I have that I, I can be the most exceptional at will be in the art space. And I was like, okay, so let's make it entertainment and, and it needs to be an entertainment organization. And then the question became with who? You know, all right, bitching, what do you, what is that going to look like? And it, it was, and, and then I just started to retrograde back to what my original interests had been, even back when I was a kid and a teenager and just, you know, reading Shakespeare out loud and, you know, getting turned on by, you know, uh, poetry and prose and, you know, saying, memorizing speeches in the mirror, you know, and, and, you know, in the name of the queen kind of stuff, you know, I mean, like stupid stuff when you're a kid, but really getting back to that sense of play and that sense of adventure. And that also that sense of right and wrong and good and evil and storytelling. And I was like, okay, then I was like, I think where I'm going to be most comfortable and have the best effect will be in the live performance space. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, we need to be live performance focused, specifically theater. And, um, 
And then it's a matter of, okay, who am I going to play in that sandbox with? And I was like, the theater community, I've said this <laughs> before, and it I don't find this to be a controversial statement, but I don't know. I could see how it could rub people the wrong way, but I guess nowadays something rubs everybody the wrong way. But I've never met a more self-assured community than the arts community. They are, there is no doubt. I, I, I always say, if you want the most sure, assured opinions on the planet, sit around a table read with actors in a rehearsal. Everybody's got an opinion and they are lock solid on it. I'm like, I have sat with fucking, you know, high speed fucking types sitting around a table, wargaming or planning something out. And they're not as confident in their plans as actors will be around a table read. And I'm like, and, and so to me, I was like, do I have the tolerance, quite frankly, to deal with that right now? Um, and I was like, I'm not sure I do. I was like, but I was like, I can, and I'd like to, but I think I need some backup. And I think, I think I need some, I think I need to get into this space and get into the sandbox with folks I really want to play with. And to me, that meant that the veteran community and then it was like, well, are they the actors or what are they going to be? And to me, it was like, no, they're the writers. And if there happen to be veteran actors, God bless, veteran directors, cool. But really, we're going to focus on developing, finding, assessing, producing veteran writers and bringing more veterans into the theater space. So it's not just the high school drama club grown large. It's actually, you're doing for, for theater what folks like Dead Reckoning and everybody else have done for poetry where the veterans just start to take over the space more. And uh, I was like, we can do that. I was like, that makes sense to me. And then I, you know, second order effect of that was doing the podcast. And through that, I started to meet all these veterans and other artistic media. And that's where I went, shit, maybe we can do some immersive art shows. Maybe we can start to mix media and bring some other folks in and really start to build out the ecosystem of veterans in the arts, um, specifically in the live performance space. So that was it. And, and those are really the two tracks that we have. Everything we do is in live performance space. One is straight theater. One is immersive art. And that's really it. Um, and that's, and I'm, I mean, it's a seven day a week, you know, 12 hour a day thing. And I fucking love it. And it makes complete sense to me now in high, um, but at the time it took a while to strip away all that stuff and get to that um, realization that that's where I was going to be happy and make, hopefully make the most effect, most positive effect. Yeah, <clears throat> a few threads, um, but something that that just um, stuck out to me. I'm be a little selfish here because uh, it, it, you actually just unlocked something for me mm. uh, that that I've been struggling with that I um, didn't realize maybe wh where it came from. And when you're talking about being around people that are self assured versus being around people that that are that are not, uh, the environment that we come from, whether it's soft or conventional or or um, supported or supporting, right? Um, there, there is an element of questioning almost everything, right? You have to question everything in order to, we believe, right? In order, to, I don't want to speak for you, but I believe that you have to question everything in order to verify, right? Trust but verify, um, and you got to poke the holes. You got to make sure, and the only way to be sure is to be constantly moving and constantly questioning, constantly wondering, while still also having this odd sense of confidence coalesced around a team. Um, as you've as you've kind of integrated into this community and you've brought uh, actors and, and writers and directors who are not military veterans into into your space with you and as you've integrated into their space, 
Have you noticed that? Have you struggled with that? Have other veterans struggled with that? Has the actor community, that theater community kind of, have you all maybe found like a bit of a gray there? Yeah, we we have. And um, I've really adored that. I've adored building a construct in which civilian artists and veteran artists can combine and inspire each other and be fueled by each other. That said, I also, it's my construct. So I make sure that a lot of that stuff is clear up front. I'll give you an example of one of the, something we, that just happened recently. Um, there was a veteran playwright who had a reading and this is not something we did, but I ended up bumping into a bunch of actors we work with regularly that attended the reading. And we talked about the reading after and they were, um, they were quick to label the bad guy in the play a bad guy because he was a type A military dude. And the good guys um, were good guys from start to finish in the play, which I think is a flaw of the play. But, uh, <laughs> but we're also, but, the, but they were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I, and the play was held at city center, which you probably know because it's, well-known spot in the city, but you know, these are, these are, this is a pretty swank location. And I kind of brought up, I was like, look, uh, the play was, I should say the play was about um, firefighters. And I said, the kind of folks that go see a play at city, uh, a stage reading at city center are not the people you want putting out a fire. And I was like, if for as like something you guys and and fortunately these are all people I know well enough that I could speak frankly and they could hear what I was saying and not just label it and dismiss it um and I said uh it's important to it's important to remember that in a dysfunctional situation it's hard to be as enlightened as a, a dispassionate third party can be sitting and watching uh, objectively. And I was like, sometimes, and, and one of the stories I told, I, I didn't really tell tales out of school, but I just said, I, I never worked with an ODA that didn't have significant issues. If you just want to look at it on paper, um, the best team I ever worked with had some significant issues and leave and legal issues that cropped up. And I was like, but I, I don't tell that story. And I told him, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you guys that story. You're not ready for it because you're going to judge them and you don't get that this was their 13th deployment and that who the fuck else do you want out there humping the Hindu Kush? You want people to come to stage readings at city center? They're going to fucking quit. You're going to need people that are somewhere on their steroid cycle and somewhere fucking, you know, yeah, they're making some hard fucking decisions because it's a hard situation to be in. So there has to, but you have to know that you have to know the, the environment that you're in and you have to understand the problem set. And I was like, if there's anything that we want to be poet laureate to in our work, it's honoring the warrior experience. I'm a big, I, I'm very anti this movement of turning all swords into pens. No, there's a place for the sword. It's necessary that the sword exists and you better fucking understand why. We're here to honor the sword and to talk about why the sword's necessary because most people have not picked up the sword. So they need to understand why the sword exists and why it's worth carrying. And there is poetry behind that. There is art behind that. And there's an unpacking process that's healthy, not just for the person that carried the sword, but especially for the audience that hasn't to go, oh shit, this is actually what it's like to walk a mile in those shoes. 
And I think sometimes in the veteran community, we assume that the civilian community knows this or inherently would somehow intuit it. And that's not true. And when we tell tales out of school um, amongst the civilian world as veterans, I think sometimes um, we can settle scores that way. Um, but, but we also misinform because people don't have the context to process some of the stuff we've seen. And that really rubs me the wrong way. And I'm like, we're here to, so that people understand the warrior class better. Um, not that everything we tell is a war story, far from it, but that, you know, uh, that we're not going to shit on what got us here because these stories and these experiences weren't just great for the greater good, but even on an individual level, they create a, a different, more interesting, more nuanced kind of art. And you dismiss those experiences at your own artistic peril. It's going to bore audiences to simply go down and have every bias confirmed by the kind of people that go to watch stage readings at city center. I sound like I'm slamming them. I'm not, I'm one of those people who's sitting there also, but it's, you can fight a fire. For, you, for, yeah, I, yeah, I sure. You can sure. Fight a fire, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but I mean, it's the kind of thing where, you know, if we're going to confirm all the biases, the people who didn't get off their ass to do it came in with how much value add is that? And not saying we're trying to create cognitive dissonance with them, but let's actually be accurate about why certain dysfunctional things happen and actually give people a real boots on ground feel for, oh shit, this is actually what that looks like. And this is why this is, this goes this way. And, um, and I think that there's far too many easy answers that people that haven't walked this life want to gravitate towards. And I think part of our role is to poke and prod and make sure that they're never easy answers that we're giving, but we're giving a 360 degree treatment of a very special kind of person who's becoming infinitely more special in each passing year, which is the person who volunteers to join a volunteer force, volunteers to go to war, volunteers for certain assignments or certain units. That's a hell, that's a different kind of person. And that's a very, a, a true underrepresented minority in the theater, if you will. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. You're, 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 you're touching on a, on, on a, Oh gosh, there's so many cultural touch points here. I think the best way to explore biases is to explore and flesh out those those biases from not just both sides, from all sides, right? To treat a human character as a human character, not just a character. You mentioned in that particular play, you felt there was a weakness where the characters didn't change. The good characters didn't change. It's like, well, yeah, characters have to change over the course of a story, regardless of what the medium is, right? Whether it's the screen, whether it's the stage, whether it's the page, whether it's a, hi a haiku, a piece of flash fiction, it doesn't matter. There has to be change or that's not a character and it's not a story, right? But the characters also need to be human. And in order to be human, they have to not just have flaws, but they have to embody all aspects of what it means to be a human or that particular human, right? So we've reached this odd place in, in our culture now where the way that we 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 put uh, a handful of a small handful of of values up on a pedestal and say this is what it means to be a good person these are the only stories you can tell and then we put a handful of 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 traits and values at the bottom of the barrel and say if you ever have any of those thoughts feelings traits or values you are always a bad person and it's like where you're operating is right here in the middle where there's just a bunch of fucking humans trying to yeah. find their way in the world, right? And so what what I, I love about the, the way that you're approaching this is you're thinking about it from a, 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 a human, you're thinking about it in a human way, 
but you're also contextualizing it around a very specific experience. The best way to get to the universal is through the specific. Yes. Yes. We're spending way too much time trying to get to the specific through the universal. And it's like, yeah, "Ah, dog, that's not the way it works. (laughs) No. And and my, my favorite, my favorite example of that is Seinfeld. You know, when, when Seinfeld first ran on NBC, NBC's biggest note was to Jewish to New York. Well, so what did they do? They went more Jewish and more New York, and that became a universal story. You go to the universality through the specifics, 100%. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Another thing you unlocked, right, is like the can, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, attached to, to a unit like yours, but just thinking about the, uh, the, the context through which I live my life personally with, with friends and around friends and around social situations, but then also the way that I operate professionally, it's like, man, there's a lot of context that the people around me, and now I'm learning naively about myself that I don't even understand that's the context from which I'm operating and the foundation from which I'm standing. I'm constantly learning about ways that my experiences in the military, uh, on the flight line, maintaining fighter jets, I mean, it's still, it's 15 years later, still informs virtually everything that I do, the or, or, or the way that I do everything that I do, I should say. And and not not to turn not to change the name of your podcast to bitching with Carrie Kite, but <laughs> let, let, I'll, let me give you one of my my passionate pleas, which is I I what really grinds my gears is that I don't think the veteran community right now it's starting to, but it doesn't yet have the vocabulary to process the GWAT. The vocabulary we're using is from Vietnam, and everyone and that's what the civilian population is expecting, and I think. Too often, it, it absolutely and and I get the civilian population isn't going to know that they're going to look at Oliver Stone movies and go, oh God, that's that's who I'm dealing with when you tell me you came back from Afghanistan. I, I get I get that I understand why they go there. For me, what pisses me off is when I see veterans a- adopt that because they go, well, shit, yeah, what else am I going to go to? Yeah, John Fogarty, CCR, and it's like really because that's not the same fucking war because we were volunteers. This was a different problem set. We went, we wanted to go here. We wanted to do this. Yes, there were good things that happened, bad things that happened, whatever. We can hash all that stuff out, but this is not the same thing and our vocabulary needs to change. And I, and that's what I think, not that we are just, not that vet rep as an organization is only about the GWAT, I should say, but when you are from the GWAT generation, it's important to capture what is unique about that because that is different than Korea and Vietnam and World War II. And it's important to let that inform the artistry that comes from it correctly and accurately and go. Yeah. It, it, and a lot of times I find myself asking some of the writers we work with, even some of the other artists I work with, I, I you know, far be it for me to put my thumb on the scale, but I will ask the question. I'm like, why do you think this is? Why do you think that you were used? Well, because, you know, you know, the the government's using me this right but did you you knew that when you signed up right cuz it's it's a government entity i mean you weren't drafted right and because they'll be using the language of the 60s and i'm like yeah but there everybody was drafted you you didn't have a choice we had a choice right so that right there is a huge inflection point um oh well yeah that's true okay well then let, maybe we need to tell a, a bit of a different angle then you know i'm not trying to take away from whatever it is you're trying to say but let's pr- probe and nudge and start to see, wait, are we just repeated regurgitating easy answers? I mean, one of the things that's been, uh, again, I'm not trying to change the title of your podcast, but but I mean, one of the things for me is uh, this whole war is a racket thing that people have resurrected from Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler was fighting in fucking wars of expedition, you know, a hundred, literally a hundred years ago. 
It's a different problem set. And we can, and I'm not sure I totally believe him then, but be that as it may, that was a different, different problem set. Where the fuck is the parallel now in the GWAT? No blood for oil in Iraq? Great. Where are the, where are the oil contracts we got out of Iraq? Where were all those? Oh, that's right. We didn't get any. And who was, who was complaining about us going into Iraq? Germany, France, you mean everybody that had oil contracts with Saddam Hussein? So that's the kind of stuff that I hear. And I'm like, are we just regurgitating things that sound good from past generations? Or are we actually trying to encapsulate and think through and download our own actual experience in the GWAT? Because I think if we really do and take a, and instead of trying to use the vocabulary of past wars, if we really try to frame it in the current context, I think we will find something truly exceptional, unique, and novel. And that's important, not just for us to understand, but especially for the civilian community to understand. And I, I, the number of head nods I get from a civilian audience when we go, you guys realize that we weren't drafted, right? It hasn't even occurred to them. They're just yeah. assuming we're coming back like we're the Vietnam generation. I'm like, dude, it's it's apples and refrigerators, man. It's it's not the same thing. Like, um, so anyway, not to go on and on about it, but yeah, that's that's something no, I, that I do see as a problem. No doubt. I mean, you're touching. I think what's um, what, this is top of mind because I'm actually I'm going to on I'm going on a podcast t- tomorrow morning to talk about uh, AI and its application to to advertising to the industry that that I that I operate in. Mm. And um, there's a parallel here, which is that like it's a human problem in that we can only use the most recent vocabulary that we have before the current one that we're in, regardless of what it is, right? So whether it's a right. technology, whether it's a war, whether it's whatever, right? We'll pick your sector, but like, it's not possible for us to really talk about something in the present tense without accessing the language of, of what most recently came before. And then there also are certain ideas um, that are kind of always in style for people who had to do the things that other people wouldn't do or couldn't do, right? And so it, it does... I, I, I tend towards your, I tend towards agreement with your perspective about war as a racket and the oil, war for oil and all of that stuff. But I think it's, it's a worthy conversation to have. It makes sense that people find his words uh, fashionable now because they went and did things that other people didn't have to do. So they saw a mm-hmm. side of it. Right. But to your point, it's like, well, let's just put it all in a pot and, right tell a story about it and see what comes out the other side. We're not here to write white papers. It's what I love about what you're doing. It's what I love about what, what dead reckoning is doing and, and, and some select others. It's like, there is a time and a place for, for, for white papers, for current events, uh, you know, dissection and evaluation and, and point counterpoint and all that stuff. But the best way to figure this human stuff out is to tell stories. We think in parables, yeah. we think in story. There is a reason that all of the, literature that has stood the test of time is driven by story with very few exceptions non-fiction books from antiquity where are they you know yeah i mean there's certainly i mean certainly there's ones that have stood the test of time you know I mean, couple, we still can right? read herodotus yeah. we, still, yeah. we still can read you know a, a, a lot of stuff uh plutarch and what have you um, but, but yes, all nar- narratives there, about the, about the, <laughs> the, the, right. you know, the real people that were there. Right. No, no, totally. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and the amount of first person accounting. Absolutely. I, I guess, um, just to put a cap on it, you know, after nine 11, like in the days after I remember watching MTV 
and wanting some inspiration and going, hey, shit, this was a huge thing. I was kind of still stunned and all that. I remember watching and the music choices. I remember was, you know, uh, Born in the USA, which isn't actually really a pro-American song, but I get why they went there. They did Live, Overcome, which is a beautiful song, but it's I Am Overcome. It's not exactly empowering. Um, they did John Cougar Mellencamp's Pink Houses. And I was like, okay, so you're just kind of doing gener general Americana, but there's nothing like pro, there's nothing ennobling, nothing empowering. And I was like, we don't have the cultural vocabulary to process nobility. We have been so ensconced in counterculture, anti-hero stuff coming up to 9-11. There was no vocabulary for it. And that to me, I think that's not why Vet Rep exists, but there is a part of Vet Rep where it's like, Look, we're going to find the veteran artists that can speak to the value of certain martial traits and and the warrior path. Um, not to glorify it, but to give it an accurate accounting and an accurate vocabulary, so that there's a cultural vocabulary by which to process nobility, worthy causes, selfless service, those kind of things. Because everything's downstream of culture. If you don't have that cultural vocabulary, you're just like you said, everything comes from stories, everything comes from culture. If you don't have that in the culture, you're going to miss that. And and I don't know where else we get it from. Yeah, you need to know what you value. And and the only, the only way to know what you value is to, to know what foundation you're, you're building on, right? And really, the only way to do that is to is to, to tell and can, to create and consume stories. Just, just a, a note to the audience. I do know that there are nonfiction accounts of things from from antiquity that have survived but the, the point that i was trying to make is just that like the oldest stories the ones that have that stood the test of time the longest were narrative based it was everything was told through a story rather than just like a this happened and this is what it means it's like no it's a it is a um, a constant evaluation a constant um collaboration of of humans telling stories in a very messy way and i love what you just said about like you're i don't think i don't want to speak for you but it doesn't seem to me that 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 rep is trying to counter the counterculture. It's actually trying to make it even more messy to have like yeah. real conversations about yeah. these things yeah. through, through story. So I, I want to go back. I mean, do you have some, do you have a little bit of, I know we're, I technically scheduled this for to end in four minutes. Do you have some time on the back end? Totally. Yeah. Cool. Let's keep it going. Um, why a nonprofit back when you were thinking about building this? Uh, to start with, our funding source was predicated on it being a nonprofit. So that, that made it easy. Uh, on, on the second level though, I don't know how else you do this. Um, it's hard to run a commercial theater. That's, that's a whole different, um, business model. Uh, and the business model for theater is set up really in the nonprofit space, which isn't super lucrative for me personally, but I think it wouldn't be super, super lucrative for me personally if a commercial business crapped out in a year or two. So, you know. Uh, I think this is the longer term play and I think this is the right move and something that does allow everyone to get behind it and uh, for it to build bandwidth. And what I love about it, and I'll, I'll just speak for one second about the difference between for-profit and non-profit if I can, um, because what my experience has been is that for-profit, you can go sell widgets. It's a binary proposition. Sell more pizza slices, the more money you get. Super easy. Non-profit, it's a conversation with your audience. It, we're not coming in selling widgets. So it's, what's what's the need here? Oh, shit. Okay, well, if we're going to do veteran playwrights, how many veteran playwrights are there? Not a ton 
whose skill set matches their stories. But there are a lot of great stories. So what do we have to do? Well, education. So now that becomes part of the nonprofit. We're going to have to do classes because we got to build that out. Wait, veterans and other artistic media? Great. We're going to do more immersive art shows. But we have it's an ongoing conversation with your audience, which in some ways makes us much more responsive. And there's much more of a pinch ouch with our audience, I feel, uh, than if we were kind of operating through a binary for-profit model where it's like, we just got to make better pizza here and let's sell more slices and let's get better ingredients and whatever. You know, it's a different, it's yeah. a different animal. Yeah, that makes sense. I think because there's a lot of there are a lot of service members that are that are either have transitioned or are transitioning out, right? That are thinking like, hey, I want to start something, whether it's a business or whether it's a nonprofit. Hey, I want to I want to serve my community, whether that's the military community or whether that's the community I I, I you know my home of record, you know, or, or the, the cultural community that I come from. And so I think what what stops a lot of of service members and veterans from starting the thing that they want to start is that they don't know where they should start and they don't ask those questions. Okay, who am I serving? Why am I serving them? What am I trying to offer them? And then evaluating those three things and saying, okay, is the best way to do this to operate a business or is the best way to do this to, to seek funding and operate a nonprofit to serve the community that way? Um, in the terms why, of, sorry, oh, just to care, just to, just to underscore what you just said, the why is, I mean, I'm not breaking any news here. The why is by far the most important, especially when you're transitioning out. I mean, I, I don't know how it was for you, but for me, like, I was like, why am I working out every day? What am I getting ready for? You know, you need to have a fucking why. And if you're going to have a, if you're going to transition your job and lose the identity of your military career or the military path or whatever you had built up in your mind, you better have a why that gets you out of bed and it better be something you're passionate about. And if you're going to start your own thing and like what you're doing and pushing people to be entrepreneurs, which I think is freaking awesome. They, they got to find that why it can't just be at market research and going, well, this makes sense. Like what, what are you truly passionate about? And what's going to get you out of bed seven days a week? That's absolutely right. Once you have that, why, and you know that why, then you do have to do the market research to find out, sure. to find yes. out like how to make it yeah. work. Right. Like it's, it's a both and yeah. scenario. So I think it's yes. absolutely important, important, but you know, I do think that folks can sometimes get caught up too much in the why and they focus and think about too much about the why, and they don't actually think enough about the what, right. It's like, why? Okay. I've got my why that anchors me, that grounds me. That's what I go to bed thinking about. That's what I wake up thinking about now. What? What do I do yes. with the rest of my day? Yep. How do I structure my day? How do I structure my weeks, my months, my yep. years? What's the plan? How do I put these things into action? Um, in terms of in terms of of funding, do you is it like a, a single source um, funding? Do you do you do you seek fundraising? How does fundraising work for you? Hmm. Um, I've had a couple of nonprofit you know CEOs and and um, yeah. you know uh, EDs on here who've talked about different ways of doing things, but there's different ways of doing things for different types of services. How does it work for you? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's all the above. I mean, we're, we're, um, as I always joke with our folks here, I mean, we are professional whores. Uh, we just are look. we're, you're, you're, it's just the nature of the beast. So you're looking for funding from every conceivable source. We're dedicated grant getters and, uh, constantly on the treadmill to what's the next thing coming up. What's the next, uh, grant giving, uh, opportunity or, or grant getting opportunity, um, you know, looking for foundations that want to support the arts or support veterans or support, I don't think anybody's dedicated to veterans in the arts, but finding a good Venn diagram overlap of those two uh, can be done. I think the other thing is, and this is where an arts organization, I think, is a lot more accountable than some other nonprofits, is the proof is in the pudding. 
everybody knows where the money's going because either we're doing a bunch of shit or we're not. And you can tell that pretty quickly. You can look at our our programming and go, hey, since we've been around since whatever, April 21. And I think we've we've done 70 productions of something or other. Uh, I mean, we hustle. And and so we we have a, even though we're still within that three-year window of nonprofit fuzziness where uh, a lot of organizations are still sketchy on you because they're like, well, you don't have the track record yet. It's like, but if we can show, if we can demonstrate what we're using the money for and how we're hustling, that goes a long way. And we've done, uh, I, I don't know, so I'm talking out of my ass here a little bit, but I feel like if we had done this in the first five years, that would have been perfectly acceptable to most folks. We've really hustled and we're very aggressive on our programming. Um, so I say that to say that does make it easier for us to fundraise because we do get in front of a lot more audience members. We are in the Northeast. We are adjacent to New York City. Um, so approaching organizations that can fund and looking for sponsors, whether it's individuals, whether it's foundations, um, you know, we're, we're a little bit more physically geolocated with them. So the so really pushing our programming to make sure we're getting in front of the right folks is um, helps. It helps a lot. Um, and this is, I'm going to say this is a biased New Yorker. I, I do think New York City is the most aggressive city in the world. I think you find people, people aren't in New York City to be the second best at anything. Um, people move to New York City to be with the best, even if it's just for a little bit. It's like, hey, I want to go be with X, Y, and Z firm or this agency or this entity. Um, for us, I mean, you know, that's true for us as well. We, we, this fits our psyche and kind of our, our, our spirit to kind of be in a place where we can be aggressive. We have a lot of different opportunities to put on different kinds of shows, meet with different kinds of talent and, um, have access to it all. So it, it works and that, and that does drive funding. Uh, it's a nice, it, it is a treadmill. We can't take a day off. We can't sleep on anything. But, uh, but that said, there is a nice reciprocity where the more we do, the more funding we get. Um, it's kind of counterintuitive if you just look at it on an Excel spreadsheet. But um, in the nonprofit space, the more proof of efficacy that you have, the better, the easier it is to get funding. People are giving their money to be spent. That's right. They're not. They're, they're not giving their money just to let it have it sit in a bank account, like you know. And and they can tell. And they can yeah. tell. You know, um, we just had a big scandal up here with people that were in the veteran space, but saying that they were tackling veteran homelessness and all that. Well, nobody's ever going to check on that because nobody's ever going to get their hands dirty and go, "Wait, how many homeless people are you helping, and where is that?" And all. Um, they check with an arts organization. They'll check because they'll yeah. go, "Hey, why haven't I heard from you in a while? What are you guys up to?" So there's yeah. a lot of accountability, and um, that's why it helps for us to be busy. Yeah, I think the smart. I've learned this now. I, I, I next to zero experience with with nonprofits in my, in my life, but through this podcast, I've had the privilege to interview you know a, a handful of of CEOs and managing directors and executives. You all have this. You all have different names for the same shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, which is which is operating and 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 asking for for money, right? And um, depending on depending on what the what the 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 um, 
I guess the arena is or the vertical is I kick it advertising language out of my head, but like depending on who the community is that you're serving different ways mm -hmm. of doing things. Right. So like one more wave with, with the surfing and the therapy and the surfboards, like, you know, they're great because they're super transparent about like, Hey, here's what we're using the money for. Here's how much we spent last year. Here's why we're asking for more this year, because this is what we're building on. Same thing with, with Steve Nesbitt, um, who's doing shield and stripes and his episode will have been live when this one goes live. So people will have heard that one. Like the, 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 you know, he's gotten really good at asking for money because he tells the story of the organization and what it is that they're doing. And people, I think people don't understand that uh, pe people who want to start a nonprofit are like, Oh, I'm going to be nervous to ask about money. It's like, well, no, you need to ask for money because you need to spend the money. The people that you're asking for money are willing to spend the money, but they need to see the return. And the return, like you said, is not a widget. It's not uh, dividends. It's it's not more money. Yeah. It is, what are you saying you're doing? Are you yeah. doing it? So if you're confident in the work that you're doing, confident in your ability to do the work, and then you follow through on that work, you're going to then be able to, to raise more money. And I think people who want to get into the space need to develop that confidence that you and these other guys have on that front. You have an interesting cross section here that I've, that I've observed, you know, as you, as I've consumed, you know, the shows and consumed the content and, and now talking to you, you have a really interesting intersection of, of the, the creative side. And I've seen it all animate in this conversation, which is cool. Your creative side, your operation side, and your very strategic side, right? Like you understand uh, what you're doing from an operational standpoint. Um, you understand why you're doing it from a creative standpoint. And then you understand what you need to be doing and what you need to do next from a strategic standpoint. What was your experience like? And my guess is supporting supporting soft units is where that that trifecta came from. Is that something you recognize in yourself? And is that something that you're able to to to, to share a little bit of what you did and how you have actually translated those skills into what you're doing now? Yeah. Um... I haven't really given it words yet, so this will be my first time kind of thinking this out loud. I, I think certainly on the operational side uh, for our nonprofit, my military experience helped a lot. Um, it wasn't even just the soft support stuff. As a firefighter, uh, firefighting in the military, um, not just the Army, is an enlisted MOS. There's no officers. So um, when I became an NCO, I was actually the debt commander and my own NCOIC, which I'm pretty sure couldn't happen in a whole lot of other job fields. Um, it was me. It was me and 22 E4s. It was just <laughs> fucking nuts. It's it's the most goofy fucking MOS in the military uh, or in the army. Is, that is the you were the E4 mafia. That was you. It was literally it was literally nothing but E4 mafia. It was so fucking nuts. But um, but I love those guys and everything like that. But I think that's where a lot of that started to come from. Is, is understanding operationally because as an organization as a firefighter i transitioned us into being a technical rescue unit which was at the time a bit of an esoteric firefighting skill set because we we're doing confined space rescue high angle rescue things like that and that was really wasn't something that the military had focused on and we had an opportunity to do um a, a project at the time that that pushed us to get those certifications but then we really took it all the way um and really made that part of our, our uh, identity as a unit. So I think there was always a sense, there there was always an entrepreneurial sense that I had that I loved, <laughs> I don't know, only childism or something. There was a part of me that just loved having creative control of a project. And whether it was an army firefighting unit or whether it's a nonprofit for veterans in the arts, 
there is a part of me that relishes that. The catch is that I always had somebody above me overlording me, whether it was big army or whatever. Um, this is a place where I don't have that. And that's incredibly freeing. And I feel an incredible obligation to um, live up to that and live up to the opportunity. And I'm old enough now that I deeply appreciate the opportunity. So um, I, it's my most cherished possession, you know, apart from my kid, it's like, I, I, this, this, I'm going to do everything in my power to, to make sure that we're constantly on top of things. So that leads me to constantly, not what if things to death, but definitely be open-minded to criticism, be open-minded to contrary points of view, um, onboard all sorts of kind of opinions, and then have enough of a gut feeling to know what's worth paying attention to and what isn't. Uh, we talk a lot. Um, you know, we, my managing director, Lilla, who I need to give a shout out to, cause we'd be dead in the water without her, but she was my first hire and she was a 10 year army veteran and then a long time, um, army spouse as well. And she, um, she said when I hired her, she's like, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing with this. And I was like, that's right. I was like, but I know you and you're anal, you're pay attention to details. You're fastidious ethically. And, and on top of it, you do love the arts. So I know the, the enjoyment and to, to go back to what we talked about initially, your curiosity is there. So between all of that, you, everything we don't know, we'll learn together. But what you have is the stuff we can't teach. And that's what I'm hiring. And so as a result, we've talked a lot through every strategically, creatively, operationally, we discuss an awful lot of things um, because we don't have a template we're going off of. And um, I would like to think that that sense of collaboration maybe comes from the military, a sense of finding subject matter experts and then running their opinions through the prism of your capabilities and seeing what, what do you need to take away from that? How much of that, how much stock do you need to put in the, and, and how much do you need to weight their opinion? Um, I think the military has given me a framework for looking at that. But there's no two ways about it. We're doing something that kind of doesn't have a roadmap. And that's been fun. It's exhausting at times, but it's definitely been fun and it's been energizing. You just need the right people to do it with. And I, you don't, I don't trust just anybody to get in the foxhole with me and, and do that. Um, I'm very fortunate that Lola and I have been in this together and have really been devving this out uh, from day one. Uh, well, I mean, you did great. If you hadn't articulated that before, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get you the transcript so that you can, so that you can go back and, and read that because you articulated it super well. I mean, you touched on a couple of really important things, both for, for hiring managers that when I talk to the corporate world about why they should hire veterans, um, you, the way that you described what you understand and trust about Lilla based on her experience and her interest, her ethics and her, and her ability is something that you, it's a frustration that I've run into working in advertising, man, where, you know, I'll be like, Oh, I've got the perfect person for this job. Well, I need to see four people to compare them against the fuck. You do need to see four people. I know the person that can do this job. You trust me to do my job. I trust them to do that job. I'm going to supervise that work. What are we doing here? We're wasting a bunch of time evaluating people that we're never going to give a shot to anyway. That's, that's, that's both the poor reflection of us as an organization and wasting their time. Because if we know we're not gonna choose those other three people and we're just using them as a comp, like that's time wasted on their end as well. And so <laughs> yeah. I, it, it, 
it's something that's like really difficult to to translate into an industry like advertising where it's like you got to have three to six options to choose from you know on 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 all fronts you know it's like i talk about this with my wife all the time who's a, a film director and a commercial video director you know it's like if you don't have 17 different commercials with two people sitting on a park bench in your reel you're never even get going to get the opportunity it's like well no look at all these other things that 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 i can do that I can take that work and translate it to this other work. It's just, it just breaks people's brains. And that's part of the exercise of this podcast is trying to figure out how to unbreak that brain, how to put it back together and show people there's a segment of the population that can come in and do the work and learn how to do on the job training is that's like yeah. 90% of what we did in the military. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I deployed, yeah. I got, I got certified to load bombs and I was deployed like three weeks later. Yeah. I wasn't even a five yeah. level in the Air Force. I didn't even, I wasn't technically qualified to do my job. I went and did it at Bagram. Like, yeah. come yeah. on, man, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I love it. I, and we're, we're going to chop that well, up and throw can, that out there and I'm going to share it with people. Yeah. And, and can I just add one thing that I'm hearing from what you said? I think there's something to be said. Um, I think I get why people are talking so much about inclusivity in corporate culture. I think there's also a worthy shout out to exclusivity. And going, hey, I know, I know what right looks like. And okay, I mean, let's get past like the the race and gender stuff. Like, uh, right, obviously, we're not talking about that. But what we mean is, you know what right looks like for the culture you are trying to build. And going, I know what the work ethic is that I want. I know what the level of expectation is I want. Um, when I was first interviewing people for Lilla's job, um, I actually talked to just a civilian general manager who um, has now gone on and he's actually at Lincoln Center. So wildly successful, great dude. Um, but he was one of my first interviewees for the position. And I said, what's the one thing in the interview? I said, uh, what's the one thing you uh, would want people working at the theater to know? Or, or, or like, oh, and what standard would you want them to live up to? And he said, I don't ever want somebody to say, that's not my job. And I thought that was interesting because I thought, I was like, oh yeah, I bet you do hear that a lot in the theater. And then I was like, you know something? That's the culture that we're going to build is a culture that doesn't need that. And that's actually when we started thinking about the physical theater and going, the only people we're ever going to hire are going to be veterans because that's the culture that we want. And it's an exclusive culture. It's a culture for those that know. I don't want to have to tell you that this isn't life and death work because you've already done life and death work and you understand what a privilege it is to be doing artistic work. I want yeah. you to know that coming in. And that's, and, and there's a certain kind of cultural ethos that you get coming out of the military. And that's what we want to work with. And we, we screen, you know, we hire slow and we fire fast. You know, we look for people that are going to get that. And um, yeah, I think, I think there's a, there's a necessary nod for exclusivity. If you know what you're about, you got, you got to get after what you're about and not just indulge every single possibility. Yeah. Be you, be who you are, be what, mm -hmm. whatever those, whatever those, uh, traits are that have been discriminated against that should not be discriminated against be that but but and be you and be who you are but if you're not people talk about being a culture fit it's like not about being a culture fit it's about what are you adding to this culture what are you being a culture add what are you bringing what are you doing um not because i'm going to work you too hard and expect you to work late nights and and over the weekend all the time and do more than your job description but like let's right. be honest people who do more than their job description tend to do a little bit better and when you have, uh, I think, especially in the nonprofit space, it, the difference between a nonprofit and just your generic bureaucracy is not that different 
if you lose motivation and if it if you turn it into something where people aren't turned on by going to work there every day. Yeah. And I think in the nonprofit space, you 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 gotta you gotta have a sense that people are down for the cause. And if they're really down for it, it doesn't mean you're gonna abuse them or exploit them or overwork them. It just means uh, these are the people you want in your foxhole with you. Yeah. And that's you, something we can appreciate. Yeah. As a leader, you need to animate them. Right. And so yep. sometimes, sometimes that means high energy, high output. Sometimes that means low energy, low output. Right. And then other times it's kind of somewhere right in the middle. And that's your job as the leader of the organization to, to help determine that um, so that you're kind of deploying your, your, your troops in, in the, in the right ways, the right places at the right time. Totally. Um, okay. I want to finish things up here. Cause I know that this is like, you know, the second of a thousand conversations that we're going to have, um, you know, o- over the course of our, of our time together on this earth. Um, what's next? What do you have on the horizon? Um, immediately, this will go out in July, uh, August, beginning of August, this will go live. So a couple months, um, what's, um, Beautiful. what, uh, what's next immediately. And then what's, what's on the horizon? What are you working towards? Well, August is perfect timing. So in September, at uh, the American Legion post inside the beautiful New York Athletic Club, uh, we have our next Savage Wonderground show that I'm really looking forward to. I don't, by the time this episode airs, I'll know a lot more about what's going to be in it than I do right now, but it's, it's going to be badass. It's going to be tragic and comedic at the same time. So I don't even want to call it tragic comic because I think we're really going to exploit both of those emotions, but I think it's going to be really, really cool. And that's actually going to be kind of a, a super savage wonderground for us. Cause we're going to do it as a, as a proper fundraiser um, as well. So that'll be a very cool event. And we have another one in October. That's going to be in Boston location TBD, probably not in August. I'll probably know by then, but right now it's, it's TBD. Um, so those will be there. Um, we just finished uh, our, you know, when I saw you in DC for our last Wonderground, we were writing that we were about to start our uh, shows with Edie Falco doing our uh, performing our first veteran-authored full-length play. Um, she did those four performances, those four sellout performances of Penguin Rep that we co-produced with. Um, we are hoping uh, that 2024 will see us be able to bring her back and maybe do a full on production and properly now that we're getting the script in much more tighter, punchier shape. Um, I, you know, I look forward to seeing what happens with that, but we've been blessed that a lot of big names have, have signed on to do stuff with us. And um, she was freaking awesome. She absolutely crushed it in that role, which isn't really that surprising, but it was just a real turn on to see that happen with the very first play that ever won our full length playwriting award. And, um, and I, I'll tell this, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say this, but I told her after the performance, I was like, Hey, I was like, you know, thanks so much for doing this. This really moved the needle for us. And she was just like, I don't do charity. And I was like, gotcha. I was like, yeah. I was like, well, good. I was like, cause we're going to go back. We're going to work this script up even more and we're going to send it to you to be as uncharitable with as you see fit. And if it clears the bar of your expectations, it wouldn't suck to have you back. Um, so we, I've been very grateful that um, so much talent has signed on to what we're doing, has seen the value of the veteran artists that, whose work they're bringing to life. And um, yeah, that hopefully will be stuff that is next-ish. God, I love that. I love that. I love that you communicate the way that you do. I, I love that you 
receive that kind of communication that way. It's such an asset, man. It is such an asset. I'm so happy for you. Um, that's, 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 I hope that when people, I hope people are listening to me say this right now and hit that like back 30 second button a couple of times to go back and listen to that, your description of your interaction with her, because man, that that's it. That is it right there yep. in quotes, asterisks, bold, underlined italics. That is fucking it. Oh man. That's yeah. Awesome. The, ve- the, ve- the veteran thing only gets you so far. It's like patriotism will get people to maybe take a phone call with us. But it, it, at the end of the day, it's got to be content. It's got to be wildly entertaining and satisfying for talent and audiences to come back and, and hook up with us and, and, and want to see stuff that we're putting on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. Before I get to the final open-ended question, where can people find you? What do you want us to link out? Uh, where can people follow you on social? Yeah. So probably the best thing to do, um, you can always follow us on social at, at we're at vet rep theater on Instagram, uh, V E T R E P theater and theater spelled E R not R E cause we're not British. And, um, and then, uh, probably the best thing to do if you really want to stay on top of what we're doing besides Instagram is, uh, subscribe to our literary blog, which is a free subscription. Every day you get a little piece of veteran writing in your email inbox. And then we put a bunch of shameless plugs underneath. You can do that at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And you just scroll down the homepage. You'll see an opportunity to subscribe. Just click the subscribe button. Uh, You put your email in there and then you'll start getting notifications from us every day and a little piece of veteran writing. And it's, um, it's a great way to stay in touch. And we do have so much. We have 11 plays in development. We've got all these underground shows going on. We've got readings going on every Saturday night up at our parlor in Cornwall. We've got just so many things going at once. Uh, it's a lot for us to talk about. So the best thing to do is subscribe to the blog and you'll hear all about it in your own time as you see fit. Awesome. We'll do link all that stuff out. Uh, highly encourage everybody to, to go follow and, and to go support. All right. So the open-ended question that I've been asking to, to end the podcast is, is, is there anything in particular that's on your heart and on your mind, which I know there is because we've, we've gone there today, which is awesome, but is there anything that's on your heart or your mind specifically for our community that you want people to, to know, whether it's a piece of advice or, or just something to put out there? What's, what's on your heart? What's on your mind right now? Um, this is something that's come up more and more recently. So it's, I don't think it's wildly off topic. Um, I think it, probably everybody can find a way to apply this to themselves. There's it seems to be a lot of confusion, especially in the art space, and that I've seen a lot of veterans kind of run into, a difference between tolerance and endorsement. And this is something that in the art space I find myself having to talk about a lot. Um, it's incredibly important to be tolerant. And but there's no nobility in only tolerating things you agree with. That's not tolerance. That's just looking for an echo chamber. Tolerance requires that you are around people that don't think the way you do, don't necessarily agree with you, but you see an an inherent value in them. Not necessarily that you have to endorse what they, uh, they say, but going, hey, this is part of, to use a very 2023 word, a diverse community is going, hey, we all are gonna think a little bit differently and art cannot exist without tolerance. You have to be willing to be poked and prodded. And if you don't want to, I mean, there's no saying you have to do it. You can not just choose not to engage. But I think for the arts community itself, it's incredibly important for it to be tolerant. And I say that as a member of a veteran arts organization where 
veterans come in with different worldviews. And we're used to that in uniform. We're used to going, hey, I can wildly disagree with the person next to me, but goddamn, can he fucking rack a 155 well? So shit, I'll, I'll be right there with him. You know, like we, we see the bigger picture and that can apply in life where you can go, I think you are a thousand percent wrong on everything, but you know something, you're a really talented writer. Like those two things can exist in harmony. And I think it's, I think that's an important thing for both veterans and the and artists to think about. And as an arts organization that caters to both, um, I think a little bit of humility on all our parts and going, look, tolerance implies I may not be a hundred percent right. I think I am, but I'm willing to hear you out and I'm willing to hear you out because I think you have value, whether or not I end up, whether or not you end up convincing me, whether or not I agree with you. So um, that's something that I find myself constantly coming back to. And there's not always a place for me to say it as openly as I'm saying it now. So I appreciate the opportunity and hopefully it's not too far afield, but yeah, there's a big difference between tolerance and endorsement. And as I will say, I hesitate to endorse just about anything, but I tolerate an awful lot. And um, I mean, I might be wrong, but I feel like that's a pretty good way to go. And I feel like it's crucial. And I hope the rest of the arts community does so as our veterans enter the public sphere because um, they're coming with different experiences and I fucking hope they get tolerated because they've lived it. They've bled it. They deserve a chance to talk about what their experiences have been without somebody trying to cram it through a filter that makes them feel comfortable that they can go, Hey, I can tolerate this. You paid the admission price. I'm happy to tolerate where you're coming from and, and hear you out whether or not I end up agreeing with it. So I think that's important. If you just heard what Chris said and think that it is for somebody else, uh, it is for you because it is for me and it is for those other people that you're thinking of too. Um, the only thing I would add to what you just said, which I, I think is perfect. And thank you very much for, for sharing that um, is that we all have all the things that you just talked about are, are a part of our shared humanity, not in some sort of like, woo woo let's all get in a circle and hold hands and we're all the same because we're not the one thing that is the same is our humanity and what comes with humanity is imperfection what comes with humanity is bias and opinions and thoughts and feelings and considerations and all of those things can will and should change over time as you grow and live your story consume other stories and and hopefully um if you're lucky get the opportunity to tell some stories so thank you well said. Appreciate your time. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. That means a lot. All right, brother. We'll see you.